In chamber music, the dominant form, and for many it's simply the supreme form, is the string quartet. Four solo strings, ideally contending or combining as equals. And since Beethoven's day, it's been held up as the medium for the most refined and profound musical thoughts. After the quartet, you'd probably choose the piano trio, though this is a more problematical medium. The instruments that make up the piano trio, the violin, piano and cello, have changed a great deal since the late 18th and early 19th centuries. When Haydn, Mozart and Beethoven wrote their piano trios, the three instruments were reasonably well balanced. The 18th century piano may have been gaining in power and range, but the violin and the cello could still keep reasonably loud and clear in its company. The trouble for us is that since Beethoven's day, the piano has gained enormously in power and range. From an instrument suited to salons and small concert venues, it's grown to be a monster that can make itself heard, even in pianissimo, at the back of the Carnegie Hall. Meanwhile, however, the violin and the cello have remained broadly the same. The substitution of metal rather than gut strings has hardly allowed them to keep pace with the piano's Napoleonic career. Hence the problem for performers, and especially for modern sound engineers. As a violinist I know put it to me, if you put a violin on top of the piano, that's okay. If you put a piano on top of a violin... There is, however, one other medium, which isn't heard nearly so often as the piano trio, and it's very rare to find groups specially devoted to performing its repertoire. I'm talking about the piano quartet. That's violin, viola, cello and piano. Three strings can offer far richer textural possibilities, yet at the same time they're better able to compete en masse with the piano. There are great examples of piano quartets by Mozart, Schumann, Brahms, Faure, and by Dvorak. There are two Dvorak piano quartets. The first is relatively early. Dvorak composed it in 1875, when he was in his mid-thirties, and to some extent still finding his way as a composer. There's some beautiful writing in it, especially for the strings. Well, Dvorak was a string player. But the piano writing can be problematic. Let's hear the opening of the first piano quartet. We have some gorgeous melodic writing for the strings, and the piano has some nice comments in response. But when the piano's not in the spotlight, its part tends to reduce to simple and not always very pianistic chordal writing. Quick, repeated chords aren't very grateful or indeed easy to play on the piano, and there are a host of instruments who could do this sort of thing at least as well.
the opening of Dvorak's first piano quartet. Such lovely ideas, and yet often it's let down by rather unimaginative or unidiomatic piano writing. It's a case where if some more piano-friendly modern composer were to come along and rework the piano part a little, there'd be no objections from me. Still, it's not as problematic as Dvorak's only piano concerto, written the following year, 1876. There have been some pretty severe criticisms of this work, almost all of them centering on the effectiveness of the piano writing. The piano concerto has not so much a warm heart as cold feet, wrote one anonymous critic. And here's a cracker from Alec Robertson, author of Dvorak in the old Master Musicians series, so he's supposedly on Dvorak's side. This is what Robertson writes. Over this score might well be written a warning to young composers. The piano passage work sounds as if Dvorak had got down a musical Mrs Beaton and weighed out his ingredients fairly accurately and mix them with the heavy hand of the inexpert cook. Those rapid repeated notes are monstrously ungrateful to play, and even when you have a pianist of the stature of Andra Schiff playing them, they still don't sound ideally elegant. It's quite a surprise, not to say a relief, to return from that to Dvorak's second piano quartet. The writing is delightfully idiomatic, and the relationship between the piano and the strings acquires new vitality and subtlety. The opening is a demonstration of that. We have stark unison writing from the three strings, a kind of textbook presentation of the first subject. You might even think it's a touch academic. It's the piano, however, that quickly adds the note of fantasy and utterly unacademic caprice. <laughs> So there we have somewhat staid, you might say proper strings, and a subversive piano. After that beginning, the strings tentatively attempt to restore order, but the piano is still questioning, until all come together at the climax. You can imagine the strings saying, with some relief, now we can present the first theme.
So, more skittishness from the piano at the end of that extract, but for a moment we had stability and propriety. Dvorak emphasises that sense of formal correctness at that high point when he brings back the string's first theme. What he does is iron out a little kink, a little eccentricity. When the strings originally introduced it, the notes occur like this. There's one slightly unexpected note there. When that comes back on the full ensemble at the climax we've just heard, that ever so slightly wrong note, B natural, is corrected like this. And it sounds more pleased with itself like that. But when we get to the end of the first section of this movement, the piano resumes his role as Lord of Misrule. And now he affects not just the incidental details in the movement, but the whole structure as well, the way the musical argument is developing. It's the convention in sonata form first movements like this to repeat the first section. It's the section called the exposition, because this is where the composer presents his main themes. Dvorak sounds as though he's engineered a confident return to the beginning of the quartet. But then, pianissimo, comes another little twist from the piano, and we're off somewhere new. variations in the dynamics of the piano-strings relationship in Dvorak's first movement are apparently endless, and there's no need for me to go on pointing them out in detail one after another. However, I can't resist drawing attention to the way Dvorak wraps it all up in this movement. The piano may be a bit of a tease, he likes undermining the earnest or romantically lyrical strings, but the end of the first movement comes a complete restoration of the friendship. There's a wonderful, mysterious moment. Tremulous strings, big, spread, rich chords on the piano. The piano perhaps compelled to be serious for a moment. But then all join together in a joyous, downward, cascading unison. After this comes one of Dvorak's loveliest chamber music slow movements. And now the group dynamic in the ensemble is very different. The cello sings out in gorgeous arching phrases, which the piano echoes rippling spread chords and delicious chromatic inflections. It's all as pianistic as the opening of the first quartet wasn't. 
It's striking comparing the piano writing in this, Dvorak's second piano quartet, with what we heard in the first, and especially with what we heard in that earlier piano concerto. Dvorak was never very much of a pianist, yet he obviously learned a great deal about the instrument and its capabilities over the years. He never had a problem with the strings. He was a violinist, and later apparently a very good viola player, especially in chamber music, so he understood the language of chamber music from the insides. But it seems that after the failure of the piano concerto, Dvorak set himself to learn, and by 1889, the year of this piano quartet, Dvorak had mastered it as though it were his own instrument. Now in the slow movement, Dvorak delights in romantic duets between the piano and the strings as soloists and as an ensemble in their own right. lovely handover after that, where the piano gets to sing lyrically, both hands in octaves, while the strings add a filigree accompaniment. You could almost describe this as a reversal of roles or even styles. The piano imitates the strings singing lyricism, the strings imitate piano accompaniment figurations, and yet it all suits the instruments perfectly. Scherzo, Dvorak uses something new to underline the contrast between the piano and the strings, and that's the use of modes or scales. The scherzo begins as a delightfully folksy waltz. The strings sing, the piano adds ripples and splashes, then the piano sings. But the piano does so to a chromatic, very minor inflected mode. It's rather like the sound of a Balkan shepherd's pipe, perhaps, or something even further eastern, and Dvorak was certainly interested in folk music beyond the limits of his own native Bohemia.
the strings sing their dance tune again, and then the piano resumes his piping. But this time there's a change to that shepherd's pipe mode. It's far less minor this time, less plaintive, smoothed out, you might say. And then it changes even more, slightly archly, like this. It seems the piano is ever so slightly recapitulating that playful, subversive role from the first movement. The finale is a more energetic kind of dance movement, now with a very strong flavour of Dvorak's native Bohemia. The ensemble leads off with a massive unison. Then Dvorak's own instrument, the viola, takes the lead, urging on the dance. The viola repeatedly resumes his role of dance leader in this finale, before handing over to the others, of course. But there are also moments where Dvorak seems to be very much involved with the classical ideal of chamber music, intimate, close dialogue between the members of the ensemble. This passage is typical. Four notes of the opening theme bounce from one instrument to another, like a ball. At the end of this finale, you can sense the energy of the dance party starting to ebb. The piano has a kind of hymn-like phrase, and the viola seems to be accompanying the background. Then the viola rises and provides a beautiful lyrical winding up. At some point in this, the tune of the piano becomes accompaniment, and the accompaniment on the viola becomes the tune. But where does it happen exactly? That's the kind of subtlety one expects in the very finest chamber music. some criticisms of the ending of Dvorak's second piano quartet, which we won't sample now. I'll leave that for the performance. But when we get to it, is Dvorak straining for an orchestral power and grandeur that his four instruments can't provide? Or is the sound of four instruments aiming very high a little too high, perhaps? Part of the fun? It certainly doesn't spoil it for me. In fact, the spectacle of four musicians straining for orchestral power can actually be rather entertaining to watch as well as to hear. But again, there's a lovely moment of coming together at the very end, as though the players had already joined hands in front of the curtain to acknowledge the applause. They'll have earned it. It's hard work playing music like this. As in all the best chamber music, there is such concentration of thought throughout, and you're in the spotlight all the time. You can't hide behind your confrères as you can do if you're in the string section of an orchestra. 
but Dvorak too has been working hard. At the time he was writing the second piano quartet, Dvorak wrote to a friend that melodies simply pour out of me. That's often held up as praise of the music, yet some more carping critics have used it to indicate that Dvorak was perhaps a naive composer, a musical sleepwalker, who let the ideas simply carry him forward and didn't give much thought to the more sophisticated elements in the content of his music. The kind of lively internal politics of ensemble writing that we've just looked at here suggests that that's just plain wrong.